Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Bambi. Bambi helps small business owners solve their most complex HR issues and employment nuances across all 50 states. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in Peter Schiff under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just big business. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com gold. We are running out of time for that Santa Claus rally. Only the Dow Jones finished the week in the black and just barely it eked out a gain of about 0.85 of a percent. But all the other major indexes were down, although the losses were minimal in the S&P and the Russell 2000. Those indexes were down about two tenths of a percent. But it was a rough week on the Nasdaq, which was down two and a half percent, bringing its total decline for the month of December up to 8.8%. Russell 2000 is down 6.7% so far in December. S&P down 5.8% and the Dow down 4%. Now we still have one more week to try to recover those losses and maybe get that Santa Claus rally. Normally you get the Santa Claus rally before Christmas. Although in 2018, we got a big Santa Claus rally after Christmas, but it wasn't a big enough rally to prevent December from being the worst December for the S&P and the Dow since 1932, I believe. And for the NASDAQ, it was the worst December in the history of the NASDAQ, which doesn't go back nearly as long as the S&P or the Dow. But one of the things that reminds me of December 2018 is that back then, the Fed was raising interest rates and posturing as if it was going to keep raising rates, that it was committed to this policy of rate hikes and quantitative tightening, but it maintained that stance in the face of weakening economic data. In fact, the data was very weak, yet the Fed was oblivious to that data and instead was focusing on its commitment to return to normal interest rates and shrink its balance sheet. And so because the Fed was so resolute in that commitment, the markets were tanking. And what ultimately happened is Powell pivoted in January. And that's really what started the rally in late December was the anticipation of the pivot, which we ultimately got. The big difference, of course, is back then we didn't have an inflation problem on our hands. So the Fed was able to come up with an excuse to pivot because inflation was still below its supposed 2% target. On the other hand, right now, inflation is still well above that target. And so the Fed riding to the rescue to save the market with a pivot seems a lot less likely this January 
than it was in January of 2019. Now, the Fed didn't immediately start cutting rates in January, but it certainly telegraphed that the trajectory of increases was going to slow down. And we ultimately did get some rate cuts. The Fed initially described them as a mid-course correction. But of course, I pointed out in real time, that was just BS. That was the beginning of the move back down to zero. And that's exactly what happened. Of course, it took a pandemic to get us to zero. But if it wasn't the pandemic, it would have been something else. And of course, we ended up with QE4, which I always knew was coming. And in fact, I always said that QE4 would be bigger than QE1, 2, and 3 combined. And I was right on that as well. So the reason that December of this year reminds me of December of 2018 is you have a similar situation where you have the Fed committed to rate hikes despite the fact that the economic data continues to deteriorate. And if we're not already in a recession, and I believe that we are, even if it hasn't been officially declared, we will surely be in a recession next year. In fact, it seems almost unanimous. Just about every analyst and every representative from any major U.S. company, they're all saying that we're going to be in recession next year. That is very rare. Normally, if a recession is coming, nobody other than me maybe sees it coming. People are extremely reluctant to forecast a recession. But now it seems like everybody has a recession in their forecast. Now, the contrarian in me might say, wait a minute, if everybody expects a recession, maybe we're not going to get one. Well, the reason I still think you could be a contrarian here is because everybody agrees that the recession is going to be mild. It's going to be short. It's going to be shallow. So in other words, it's no big deal. So in that respect, the consensus is still wrong because there's no way this recession is going to be shallow. It is going to be extremely deep and it's going to be long lasting and it's probably going to include a worse financial crisis than 2008. Think about it. There's no way that this recession could be mild. As I've mentioned on this podcast, recessions generally are proportionate to the booms that precede them. And those booms typically result from the mistakes that are made when the Fed keeps interest rates artificially low. And so the lower the Fed keeps rates and the longer it keeps them low, the more mistakes get made. Well, we've had near 0% interest rates for over a decade. We had four rounds of quantitative easing. The Fed inflated the mother of all bubbles. It's not going to be followed by itsy-bitsy recession. We're going to have the mother of all recessions. It's going to be worse than the recession of 2007, 2008, which we now call the Great Recession. So this one's going to be greater than that. So either we're going to have to rename that recession or come up with an even more ominous name for the one that we're already in, but is going to get much worse in 2023 and probably beyond. Also, one of the other mistakes that a lot of investors make is believing that once the Fed succeeds in reducing inflation to 2%, that we're just going to go right back to those low interest rates that we've had since the 2008 financial crisis. Well, they're wrong twice. First of all, the Fed's not going to succeed in bringing inflation back down to 2%. And even if they did succeed, they couldn't immediately lower rates back down to the low rates that we became accustomed to because that's why we have all this inflation. And if they tried to bring rates back down, any progress on inflation would be lost. So in order to get inflation down to 2% and keep it there, the Fed needs to normalize interest rates and then leave them there. In fact, it actually has to get restrictive. And then once inflation is back down to 2%, we can have a normal rate of interest. But normal interest rates are above the inflation rate because nobody will normally loan money for less than the rate of inflation because you're going to lose. You have to get some type of positive return for making a loan. So if inflation goes back down to 2%, maybe rates could be 3 or 4%. They can't go back down to 1% or zero, not unless the Fed wants to unleash the inflation monster that it supposedly just succeeded in corralling. But of course, it's not going to succeed in doing that because the Fed is not going to raise rates high enough to bring inflation down to 2%, nor is the Fed going to get any cooperation 
from Congress because we need cuts to government spending. But we're getting the opposite of that. We just got this omnibus spending bill, $1.7 trillion in spending. This is throwing gasoline on the inflation fire. We're increasing defense spending. We're increasing welfare spending. In fact, we're increasing defense spending on the Ukraine. Included in the omnibus spending bill was another $45 billion in aid for the Ukraine, bringing the total so far this year to $113 billion. Now, first of all, to put that in perspective, the entire military budget for Russia for the year is $65 billion. So the United States alone has given the Ukraine about twice as much as Russia spends total on the war. And America is not the only country giving the Ukraine aid. The Ukraine is getting aid from Europe and maybe Asia. So a lot of money is going into the Ukraine, far more than Russia is spending to fight the war. And it seems that if our real goal was peace, which should be our goal, instead of spending all this money to perpetuate a war, we should be doing everything we could to try to organize a peace because a peaceful resolution of this crisis should be in everybody's interest. But apparently there's so much money at stake. A lot of people are getting rich off the war. So the last thing they want is peace. Another way, though, to look at the absurdity of the amount of money that we are spending on this war, the $113 billion in aid thus far in 2022 amounts to about $2,500 per Ukrainian. I'm talking about all the little kids, too. So for a family of four, that would equate to $10,000. Now, $10,000 is about twice the average household income in the Ukraine. That's how much this aid is. So to put that into perspective, for an equivalent amount of money in the United States, that would be $140,000 per family. Can you imagine the United States receiving aid in the amount of $140,000 per household. This is an absurd amount of money, and it's going to continue. There's no reason to believe that we're not going to do the same thing in 2023. In fact, it may even be bigger. The other question, of course, is where's all the money coming from? We don't have this money. We're creating it. We're printing it. We're supposedly fighting a war against inflation. But rather than trying to win the war against inflation, the U.S. is more concerned about perpetuating the war in the Ukraine. And the result is both the war in the Ukraine and inflation in the U.S. not only continue, but they'll probably get worse. But the bottom line here is that there is no interest in Congress to do anything to reduce government spending. We continue to increase government spending as if we don't even have an inflation problem. All these politicians are spending all this time talking about how bad the inflation problem is, yet not only do they do nothing to try to solve the problem, but everything they're doing is compounding the problem. They want to just point to the Fed and say, well, it's your responsibility. It takes two to tango. The Fed is not going to be able to get rid of inflation unless the government stops running massive budget deficits that the Fed ultimately has to monetize. All of this government spending has to be paid for. You know, Elon Musk ran this poll on Twitter, obviously not a scientific poll, but the vast majority of the three million or so people, obviously some of them aren't even Americans, who responded to the poll said they opposed this on the spending bill. Well, just about everybody would oppose this on the spending bill if they realized that they were going to have to pick up the tab through higher inflation, because that's where the money is coming from. The government is not raising taxes on anybody to cover all this spending. Well, that doesn't mean we get all the spending for free. We have to pay for it another way, and we're paying for it through inflation. And since inflation is the most regressive of all taxes because it falls the heaviest on those that can least afford to pay it, the working poor, the middle class, that is the new tax system we have in America because we can't get any taxes on the rich. Nobody is willing to even support those. And even if we could raise taxes on the rich, we really wouldn't generate much revenue from the rich. They're already paying a lot of taxes and you run the risk of making them less productive and ultimately undermining the economy and the tax base. So we have to raise taxes on the middle class because that's where the money is, but nobody will raise taxes on the middle class. And since nobody will cut spending, well then, the only choice is inflation. Inflation is the only politically palatable way that government can pay for all this spending. 
They have no way not to spend. They have no way to raise taxes to cover the cost. So they use inflation to cover the cost. And then they blame other people for inflation, whether it's Putin, whether it's corporate greed, whether it's the pandemic. They'll never run out of excuses to blame inflation on, and they will never accept responsibility for having created the inflation themselves. If you're an employer, what are you going to do if one of your employees reports a serious issue like sexual harassment and you're not sure if you have a documented policy? Well, you better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, you get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 a month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat. So onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedbacks. You'll get a U.S.-based HR manager actually assigned to you. So you get HR expertise with the personal touch of a dedicated HR expert who knows you and your business. HR managers can easily cost 80 grand a year, but Bambi starts at just 99 bucks a month. So schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in Peter Schiff under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. That's Bambi spelled B-A-M-B-E-E.com. That's Bambi.com. And don't forget to type in Peter Schiff. But getting back to the stock market, I want to take a look at how some of the more speculative stocks did. I already mentioned how weak the NASDAQ was. Well, take a look at the Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF, down 7% on the week. It's now down 17.4% on the month. And this week, it finally made a new record low. It closed the week down just over 80% from its 2021 peak. Now, I've been predicting downside for this fund for years now. And when the fund was down 60%, I said it was going down 80%. Now it is down 80% and it's still expensive. I think it'll be down 90% and it still probably won't have finished bottoming out. This fund was the number one ranked fund in 2020. And that's what made Kathy Wood the talk of the town. She was the favorite guest on CNBC. They were bowing down to her. She could do no wrong. She was the investment goddess. Well, now... Not only was her fund at the bottom of about 600 funds that Morningstar tracks for 2021, it's on track to finish 2022 as the worst performing fund that Morningstar tracks. That's why the fund now has one star. And I think that it's going to be a hat trick. I think that her fund is also going to be the worst performing fund in 2023. Now, one of the reasons that the ARK Innovation Fund was so weak was Tesla, one of its top holdings, no longer its top holding, but I think it's number three. Tesla was down 18% on the week. It's now down 37% on the month of December and just a hair under 70% from its all-time record high set in January of this year. Now, again, Tesla was another stock bubble that I was talking about. I warned that the air would come out of this bubble and exactly what I said would happen is happening. And I still think there's more room for Tesla to fall. Now, a lot of people in the media are trying to just blame the whole thing on the fact that Elon Musk bought Twitter. I don't think that has much to do with it. Yes, Elon Musk had to sell some stock to help pay for that. And that is part of it. But if you actually look at all the EV stocks, they're all getting killed. In fact, Tesla is doing a little better than its peers. So it's actually outperforming in its sector. So you can't just compare Tesla to the NASDAQ. You have to look at it compared to other EV stocks. Those companies didn't buy a social media company. So Tesla is not going down because people are pissed off that Elon Musk owns Twitter. Tesla is going down because the air is coming out of the bubble. Tesla is going down because the stock was wildly overpriced. It was wildly overpriced before it dropped 70%, and it'll still be overpriced if it drops another 70%. That is the reality, and it just shows you how completely out of whack things got during the bubble. And Kathy Wood still doesn't understand this. She still is so trapped in this bubble, she still can't see the reality of what she experienced in 2020. She still thinks she's a genius. She still thinks it's everybody else that just doesn't get it. And that is the fatal flaw for her and investors in ARK Innovation. In fact, 
This is the opposite of an ark. When you think of ark, you think of Noah, and the ark was some kind of salvation. You got aboard that ark, and you didn't die because everybody else drowned in a flood. Well, if you're aboard this ark, you're on a sinking ship. This is like the Titanic, and anybody who is still on this ship should get out. The good news is there are plenty of life rafts. All you have to do is be smart enough to take advantage of one because the people who were stuck on the Titanic, they had no choice. There were no life rafts, and they had to go down with the ship. Unfortunately, Kathy Wood is going to go down with this ship, but anybody else who's been aboard needs to read the writing on the walls and get out. And I would say that if I was going to get out of the ARC Innovation Fund, I think the best way to try to recover my losses would be to get into a gold fund, specifically the Euro-Pacific gold fund. I think that's the best one, but you could buy the worst gold fund and you're still going to do a lot better than the ARC Innovation Fund. In fact, if you look at the performance of gold on the week, gold was up one and a half percent on the week, bucking the returns in stocks. In fact, it's up about 1.5% on the month as well, so not much change there. Gold closed the day at $1,798 an ounce. Silver had an even bigger week, up 7%, 7% on the month as well, so the entirety of that gain happening this week. Silver closed at $23.73. The GDX did not rise with gold. It was down 0.6% on the week, and that's about where it is on the month. But the juniors did a bit better. The GDXJ actually finished the week up 1%, even better than the Dow, and it was up about 1% on the month. If you look back now at where gold is, gold is down 13.5% from its peak. So out of that bear market territory, still in correction, but it's still not that far off its all-time record high. In contrast, the GDX and the GDXJ, they are down 30% from where they were before gold corrected 13.5%. But what's more significant than that, if you want to measure how much these mining stocks are down from their all-time record highs, because gold's 13.5% decline is from its record high. So if you measure where the GDX and the GDXJ are now relative to their record highs, those record highs were set back in 2011. And since then, the GDX is down about 60%, and the GDXJ is down 80%. So in other words, these stocks are still super cheap. So I think if the people who have big losses in ARC If they just cut and run, take those losses, accept they made a mistake, and just invest what's left in gold and silver mining stocks, whether they use the Euro-Pacific Gold Fund or just buy these indexes, I think not only will they make back the money they lost, but they'll end up making a profit. If you bought the ARK Innovation ETF at the peak and now you're down 80%, you need to make five times your money to get even. You have no chance of doing that in the ARK Fund. But I think gold and silver stocks can 10x from here. And that means you can end up doubling your money in gold and silver stocks, even after losing 80% of your money first in the ARK Innovation ETF. But a lot of people just get stuck in their losing position and they think, I can't get out until I get even. I'm just going to hold on until I get even. Well, even if you do get even, what if it takes 10 years? What if it's better to sell that stock, realize your loss, especially now at the end of the year, you could get a tax loss that might help you on your tax return. And then you could put the money into something else and you might get even a lot quicker. You don't have to make the money back in the same stock where you lost it in the first place. But the problem is for the people that hold and hope because they don't want to sell at a loss, they just want to get even, they never get even. They just have a bigger loss. And they always say that a small loss is your best friend. Take it, because if you don't take a small loss, chances are it's going to turn into a big loss. And it's much easier to make up for a small loss than a big loss. Now, obviously, for a lot of people holding ARC, it's too late to get out with a small loss. So you got to get out with a big loss, because if you don't get out with a big loss, you're going to be stuck with a much bigger loss. And at least if you get out now, you salvage enough of your original investment that you can make it back in a different investment. Because not only do I think that we're early in a bull market in gold and silver mining stocks, but I think those stocks will eventually be in a bubble. 
just like the one that tech stocks were in. And so before this bubble completely deflates, you can position yourself in gold stocks before the bubble even begins to form. And then when that bubble is near its peak, you'll be able to cash out. Hopefully, you'll be smart enough to sell. And hopefully, I'll be smart enough to recognize that and advise you to sell. Moving from real gold to fool's gold, Bitcoin not holding up nearly as well as the real thing. Bitcoin is now down 75% from its peak. It's trading at about 16,800. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust doing even worse. It's down 86% from its high. And it closed the week at a 46% discount to its net asset value. That really lets you know that any institutional interest there may have been in Bitcoin is lost. And those institutions that dip their toe in the water are glad they didn't jump in completely, but now they are removing their toes. And as a result, these prices are coming down. And I think right now, GBTC, to the extent that people believe that they're not going bankrupt, is significant competition for Bitcoin. In fact, you could buy GBTC instead of buying Bitcoin, and then you could short Bitcoin and have an arbitrage there if GBTC ever becomes an ETF. But even if it doesn't become an ETF, at some point, the discount can narrow because it's so wide. So it seems to me that that might not be a bad trade, and a lot of people are potentially putting it on. They just don't want to go naked long GBTC. They want to also short Bitcoin. And to the extent that that trade is there, it's going to put a lot of downward pressure on Bitcoin itself. And a lot of people in the Bitcoin community are certain that the Bitcoin winter is coming to an end and we're going to have springtime in 2023. Well, as I've been saying, this is not just winter. This is an ice age. In fact, it's an extinction event. It's going to get a lot colder in 2023. In fact, a blizzard is coming. And the same thing that I said about ARK Innovation Investors applies to Bitcoin investors, GBTC, or any of these cryptocurrencies. Get out, take your losses, and then put your chips on a better bet. Put those chips on gold and silver stocks, maybe even the junior mining stocks. If you want to get aggressive and really try to get your losses back, that's the way to do it. Now, of course, the gold and silver stocks are risky too, but I think they're a lot less risky than Bitcoin or the ARK Innovation Fund. And I think the risk-reward is much more in your favor. I think the downside risk is a lot smaller relative to the upside potential. And so if you're going to gamble anyway, then you might as well do it on something that has a better payout if you bet right and doesn't have as much downside if you bet wrong. What was also significant on the week was the continued weakness in the U.S. dollar. In fact, another weekly close below 105. We closed at 104 spot 33. That was down about 40 basis points on the week. We're down about one and a half percent on the month. And I think the longer we hold below 105, the greater the chances are that the next move in the dollar is going to be lower. And I think that's what we're going to see. If we don't get it in the last week of 2022, I think we'll see a big drop in the early weeks of 2023. And that's why I think even if we get a belated Santa Claus rally sometime in the final week of the year, the Grinch is going to be there to steal it in early January. Because as I've been saying, any Santa Claus rally, if it comes, is a selling opportunity. That is the gift from Santa. The gift is your opportunity to sell. Can we talk about notifications? Who actually leaves those sounds on anymore? Well, besides that one, that's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether your thing is vintage teas or recipe for ghee, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. Shopify has all the sales channel sorted so your business keeps on growing from an in-person pos system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform even across social media platforms like tiktok facebook and instagram and thanks to 24 7 support and free libraries full of educational content shopify's got you every step of the way it's how every minute new sellers around the world make their first sale with shopify and you will too when you're ready to launch your thing into the spotlight do it with shopify the commerce platform backing millions of business 
businesses down the street and around the globe. These are the possibilities, and they're powered by Shopify. Shopify makes selling so simple that you can put yourself and your ideas out there. Whether your thing is making ebooks or earrings, Shopify makes your success possible. Making your ideas real opens endless possibilities. And I love how Shopify makes it easy for anyone to successfully run a small business. It's never been easier to start and grow a business thanks to Shopify. Go on, try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash gold. Go to shopify.com slash gold to start selling online today. That's shopify.com slash gold. We did get some economic data that came out during the week. A couple of standouts were the durable goods orders for November. That was supposed to come out at minus 0.8, and instead it came out at minus 2.1. So more than twice as weak as expected. And in fact, they revised down the prior month from the original up 1% to up just 0.7%. Also, the Kansas City Manufacturing Index was minus 9. It was minus 6 in November. So the manufacturing sector continues to be weak. In fact, one of the weakest numbers that came out was the index of leading economic indicators. That was supposed to come out at minus 0.5. And that would have followed a minus 0.8 in October. Well, they took the October number and they made it worse to minus 0.9. But then the November number came out at minus 1.0, double what had been estimated and way below the low range of estimates, which went from minus 0.6 to minus 0.4. In fact, one of the reasons that the LEI wasn't worse in November was because we had a big stock market rally. And the stock market performance is part of the indicators. Well, we already know that so far, the month of December, stocks are way down. And if that continues in the last week, then that's going to weigh even heavier on these indicators. So maybe the December number will be even worse than the November number. And November was the ninth month in a row where the leading economic indicators were negative. So this is flashing recession. And as I mentioned earlier, The light is now so blinding that we're coming into a recession that just about everybody has to admit that it's coming. In fact, I mentioned on the last podcast, the Fed is now the closest I've ever seen it to acknowledging that a recession is coming by claiming that the Fed has no idea if a recession is coming because nobody can possibly know if a recession is coming. And then no one can know if that recession will be shallow or deep. So at least before the Fed said they didn't think a recession was coming. This is the closest they've ever come to claiming they think one is coming by pretending they have no clue and also saying that nobody has a clue. And that is basically providing them with cover. So when there is a recession, they don't have egg on their faces for emphatically claiming that we would avoid one. But by far the most significant news on the week was the bomb the Japanese dropped on the markets on Monday night. I've been talking on this podcast about the ridiculous yield curve control policy going on in Japan right now, where the Bank of Japan has committed to keeping the yield on a 10-year Japanese government bond at 25 basis points. Now, given that inflation is well above 25 basis points, nobody wants to loan money to the Japanese government at just 25 basis points. So the only way to keep the yield that low is for the Bank of Japan to buy the JGBs that nobody else wants. The problem is, in order to do that, they have to print even more yen, creating even more inflation, therefore creating an even greater desire to sell Japanese government bonds. And that is the no-win scenario that the Bank of Japan faced. The reason that people don't want to buy 10-year Japanese government bonds that yield 25 basis points is because inflation is much higher than that. But the only way for the Bank of Japan to keep rates that low is to create even more inflation to buy those bonds. So it's like a dog trying to catch its tail. It's never going to do it. Well, on Monday night, the Bank of Japan announced that it was raising that yield target from 25 basis points to 50 basis points, basically doubling the yield that it would allow on Japanese government bonds overnight. And of course, that immediately sent yield surging. They haven't hit. 50 basis point yet. The highest I saw, I think, was 45 basis points. As I am recording this podcast now, I checked where the yield closed on Friday, 
and Japanese government bonds went out at 0.37 yield, so below the 50 basis point ceiling. But I believe that before too long, the yield on the 10-year JGB is going to be stuck right at 50 basis points, the same way it used to be stuck at 25 basis points, because the yield is still too low. The government is artificially suppressing yields, and so everybody is going to want to sell. The only buyer of those securities is going to be the Japanese government bond. They actually realized this because at the same time, they announced that they're going to allow the yield on the 10-year JGB to go from 25 basis points to 50 basis points. They also announced an expansion of their quantitative easing program. Talk about mixed signals because those policies are at odds with one another because they're tightening and easing at the same time. But I think they realize that there is no way to maintain 50 basis points. They couldn't maintain 25, and they won't be able to maintain 50, which is why I know they're going to go up to 75. They're going to go up to 100, because the Bank of Japan is going to have to create just as much inflation to artificially maintain the yields at 50 basis points as they did at 25 basis points, which means eventually they're going to give up. In a way, what the Bank of Japan did was a pivot. Because everybody has been waiting for the Fed to pivot. Nobody noticed the pivot in Japan. Because up until now, Japan was the last holdout of the major central banks because they weren't fighting inflation at all. In fact, by pegging the yield on a 10-year JGB at 25 basis points, the Japanese already decided that higher inflation is better than higher interest rates. Well, the problem is, if you have higher inflation, you're going to have higher interest rates. And the more yen the Bank of Japan prints to buy JGBs to prevent higher interest rates, the higher the inflation rate is going to rise. The reason higher interest rates are such a big problem for the Japanese government is because the Japanese government has so much debt. The Japanese government debt to GDP is 270%. That's twice the debt to GDP in the United States, even if you include the state and local governments. 50% of that debt is owned by the Bank of Japan. And the reason the Bank of Japan owns all that debt is because they had to print all this yen to buy all those bonds because according to the Bank of Japan and the government of Japan, remember Abenomics, the whole purpose of Abenomics was higher inflation. The economic theory in Japan was that we didn't have enough inflation, that if we only had more inflation, we'd have a stronger economy. That, of course, was an asinine theory, and I pointed out the absurdity of it in real time. Of course, it's the same nonsense that we're getting from the European Central Bank, from the Bank of England. Even the Fed bought into the idea that we need inflation in order to have economic growth, and we can't risk deflation. That's the worst possible thing. So the Japanese government was deliberately creating inflation because they said it was too low. And in fact, if you look at where inflation was in Japan, going back to 2015, the inflation rate averaged between zero and 1% a year. So they weren't even near two because they were not even at one. We had a couple of points in 2018 where the year-over-year rate got above 1%. But in fact, in 2021, the rate actually got to negative 1% year over year. So they actually slipped into the dreaded deflation. They had falling prices. Now, of course, all hell didn't break loose in Japan because the cost of living notched down a little bit in 2021. But of course, when your policy is 2% inflation, you freak out when you get a minus one. And so they kept on printing and printing money. Well, now the non-existent problem of too little inflation has become a very real problem of too much inflation. I've explained many times on this podcast why it's absurd to believe that low inflation is a barrier to economic growth. The idea that nobody is going to spend unless prices are rising is absurd. And first of all, economic growth doesn't come from spending. It comes from the opposite of spending. It comes from underconsumption, savings, and capital investment. That's what grows the economy. But to the extent that you want to look at the demand side of the economy, the best thing to help demand is when prices go down. Because when prices go down, you can buy more. As we're learning right now, prices are rising and it's destroying demand. Because as prices go up, people spend more money 
on the necessities and they have less money left over for everything else. But if you had a declining cost of energy, if you had a declining cost of food, if rents were going down, if a lot of your costs were going down, that would free up purchasing power to buy more stuff. So falling prices promote economic growth, not the other way around. People don't have an unlimited amount of money. And the cheaper things are, the more stuff they could buy. Businesses aren't even hurt by falling prices because if their costs are falling along with prices, they maintain their margins and they make a greater profit because they have higher volumes, because they can get more sales at lower price points and therefore earn more money even if the prices are lower. So it's all nonsense that we need rising prices to have a growing economy. And part of the reason for the fear of falling prices is they go back to the Great Depression and they look at the fact that prices went down during the Depression and we had a depression and they make the faulty logical conclusion that it was the falling prices that caused the depression. There is no logical connection between those two things. Just because they happened at the same time doesn't mean one caused the other. And in fact, if there is a causal relationship, it's the other way around. It's not that falling prices caused the depression. It's that the depression caused prices to fall. And it's a good thing that they fell because that eased the burden of the depression. Looking at the depression and looking at falling prices and concluding that we had a depression because we had falling prices is like looking at wet sidewalks and saying, aha, the reason it rained is because the sidewalks are wet. They have an ass backwards, but it's this fear over creating another Great Depression that is one of the reasons that politicians are justifying their avoidance of deflation at any cost and their pursuit of inflation as if it's some kind of holy grail of economic growth. Well, now, in pursuit of 2% inflation, the Japanese have nearly 4% inflation. The CPI came out in Japan on Thursday, and the year-over-year increase in consumer prices was 3.8%. If you strip out fresh food, it was 3.7%. That is a 41-year high. And if you take out food and energy, it drops to 2.8%, but that's still a big number it's way above 2%, and the Japanese now have a huge problem on their hands. Now, of course, the ECB has the same problem. The U.S. has the problem. But one of the unique things about the Japanese problem is that if interest rates just go to 3% in Japan, and they should go to 3%, they should go higher than 3% when they have 4% inflation, but 3% is the rate at which it would take 100% of the Japanese government's tax revenue just to pay the interest on the Japanese government debt. That is enormous sovereign debt crisis in the making. Just imagine the ramifications politically of trying to avoid that. You're talking about massive tax increases on the Japanese or massive cuts to government spending. Now, the Japanese are actually wealthy enough to afford it. That's one of the big differences between Japan and the United States is the Japanese could afford to pay higher taxes. We can't. But just because they can afford to pay higher taxes doesn't mean they want to. But they would not be in this predicament but for the asinine policies of Abinomics and this pursuit of this 2% inflation. And I warned all along that there's no way to fine-tune it. And just because you're trying to hit 2% doesn't mean you're not going to overshoot. In fact, I forecast that they would overshoot, and then it would be almost impossible to bring the rate back down. In fact, if you remember the rhetoric that was coming out of the Fed and Jerome Powell back in the early days when he became Fed chair, and it was pretty obvious that inflation was starting to pick up, yet he's kept rates at zero and continued quantitative easing, Powell's justification for keeping the monetary pedal to the metal, even when it looked like we could have a potential inflation problem, was that if we ended up with an inflation problem, according to Powell, it was a good problem to have because Powell said that unlike low inflation, which has been very difficult to overcome, we know how to deal with high inflation. We have the tools. All we have to do is raise interest rates and we can reduce high inflation. So high inflation would be a good problem to have because it's eluded us for so long. We've really tried hard to get to 2% and we haven't been able to get there. So if we get to two and a quarter, two and a half, fantastic. We'll just dial it right back down to 2%. No problem. That's what he was saying. 
what I said was that when inflation gets to two and a quarter, two and a half, there's going to be no way to stop it. It's going to go to three, three and a half, four, five, and higher. And that is exactly what happened. And I think the whole thing was BS on the part of Powell to even claim that type of ability on the part of the Fed. Powell was just looking for any excuse possible not to risk putting the economy into a recession. So instead, he risked something much worse. Remember, I said that Powell was betting the farm on transitory, that he basically went all in and bet the entire country. Because I said if Powell was wrong and inflation wasn't transitory, he would have let a genie out of the bottle that he had no chance of ever putting back in, and it was going to do massive damage to the U.S. economy. Well, the Japanese have a similar inflation genie on their hands, but the Japanese have been creating this inflation problem for better than 30 years. So when it comes time to pay the piper, it's one hell of a bill because they had a huge bubble in Japan during the 1980s in the stock market and in the real estate market. And the reason for that bubble was that the Bank of Japan kept interest rates too low. The main reason was to prevent the yen from rising too much against the dollar. Now, the yen went up, but it would have gone up even more, but for the inflationary policies of the Bank of Japan. Now, this was misguided. It was their attempt to maintain the U.S. as an export market for the United States, so they artificially suppressed interest rates. The problem was it created a stock market bubble and a real estate bubble. These were very similar to the mistakes that the Federal Reserve made in the latter part of the 1920s when they tried to prop up the British pound and that excess liquidity went into U.S. stock and bond prices. Well, the same thing happened in Japan. And when that bubble burst in 1989 and we had a big collapse in Japanese stock and real estate prices, instead of allowing the free market to correct all the mistakes that had been made and purge all the imbalances out of an otherwise very healthy Japanese economy, the Japanese government, the Bank of Japan, intervened to try to mitigate the decline. And of course, in the process, they prevented the mistakes from being corrected. They put a lot of zombie companies on life support that otherwise would have died, but out of their deaths, more economically viable companies would have been born. We would have had a Schrumpeter creative destruction which was badly needed in the Japanese economy. But instead of allowing a real recovery to take place, we had one phony recovery after another. That's how we had a lost decade and then another lost decade. It was because the government did not allow the free market to work under the theory that, well, the free market cure would be too painful. Well, it might have been painful, but it would have worked and the pain would have been over a long time ago. It's kind of like ripping a Band-Aid off versus slowly peeling it off. The free market rips off the Band-Aid. What the government does is peels it off slowly. And in fact, if you want to judge the success of this interventionist inflationary policy, just take a look at the Japanese stock market because it peaked in 1989 at just under 39,000. And if you look at the price today, 33 years later, it's 30% lower. And now, obviously, these stocks have paid dividends over the past 33 years, but the price is 30% lower 33 years later. That is an abysmal failure. And to put into perspective just how big the Japanese stock market bubble got when it peaked, if you look at the beginning of the rise, 1950, to the peak 40 years later, 1989, if an American investor invested 10,000 U.S. dollars in Japanese stocks in 1950, at the high in 1989, that $10,000 investment would have been worth $12 million. Now, $4 million of the $12 million was from the appreciation in the stock. The other $8 million was from the tripling of the value of the Japanese yen relative to the U.S. dollar. In contrast, if an American investor invested $10,000 in the Dow Jones in 1950, at the same point in time in 1989, that 10000 would be worth 135000 Again, I'm not counting dividends. I'm just looking at the price appreciation. But $12 million in Japanese stocks versus 135000 in U.S. stocks. That is an enormous difference. Now, all of that wasn't the bubble, but a good portion of it was. But I believe had the Japanese government not intervened 
after the bubble crashed and allowed the free market to function, not only would the Japanese economy be far stronger than it is today and the Japanese standard of living much higher and Japanese government debt to GDP significantly lower, but I also think the Japanese stock market would be significantly higher today than its 1989 peak. But unfortunately for the Japanese, the government intervened to try to protect them from a recession, and instead they got something much worse, and now they have an even bigger problem because instead of just slow growth, they have inflation. Now, one solution that the Japanese have that we don't, and it doesn't solve the whole problem, but it's a start, is they could sell their 1.3 trillion of U.S. treasuries because if they did that, then they could take the dollars they get, sell them, get Japanese yen, That'll push up the value of the yen, which will help bring down prices, especially for imports. Then the Japanese government could take those yen and buy back JGBs from the Bank of Japan, basically retire that debt. And then the Bank of Japan takes that money out of circulation. And so the Japanese money supply shrinks and 13% of the Japanese national debt gets eliminated. Now that would fight inflation. And that would come at low political costs in Japan because instead of asking the Japanese to pay to fight inflation, they would be asking Americans. Because one of the reasons that the Japanese own so many U.S. treasuries is because they wanted to prop up the dollar. They didn't want the yen to get too strong because they wanted to maintain their exports to the United States. Well, we've just had a huge crash in the value of the yen. They need a stronger yen if they want lower inflation. So what they need to do is take our inflation that they imported and export it back to the United States. So the problem, of course, for America is that this solution for Japan just makes our problem even worse. Now, are they going to rush out and sell all of their $1.3 trillion in treasuries right away? No, but they're not going to buy any more. That's for damn sure. And I think they're already selling. And I think they're going to pick up the pace of selling treasuries because it is the most politically viable way to begin the inflation fight. Now, I don't know that they can win the fight just by selling U.S. treasuries, but it's the best way that they can start. And they can't win a fight unless they get in the ring. And the best way to do that is, again, selling dollars, selling treasuries. But when Japan throws that punch, it's the U.S. economy that gets knocked out. But even before Japan becomes a significant seller of U.S. Treasuries, Monday night's pivot to allow the yield on the 10-year JGB to rise indicates that the Bank of Japan has now joined the tightening party, having been the last holdout from that party. And this is going to further complicate the U.S. stock market and the U.S. bond market because Japanese liquidity, which has been helping to prop up global markets, is now being withdrawn and any assets that have been floating on that liquidity are going to sink. I want to end today's podcast by wishing all of my listeners a very Merry Christmas and a Happy Hanukkah. And just in case I don't record any more podcasts next week, Happy New Year, everyone, and I'll be back again in 2023.